Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. Over the course of this program, the one topic that I have most often addressed is physician-assisted suicide. This show is about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective, and there can be no greater threat to the ethical nature of medicine than physician-assisted suicide, which I have called the abandonment of Hippocratic medicine. The only thing on par with the killing of one's patient in a perverted effort to kill his suffering is the equally perverse practice of slaughtering innocent life within the sanctuary of the womb. This is why, since the time of Hippocrates, both atrocities have been specifically forsworn by those who truly try to practice their medical art in purity and in holiness. Sadly, the blood of innocent life is on the hands of the medical profession across the country and the world as the evil genie of the culture of death is out of the bottle with regard to abortion. Putting the genie back in the bottle is difficult indeed. Less arduous, albeit still a strenuous endeavor, is preventing the genie from escaping in the first place. That's where we stand with respect to physician-assisted suicide, which has been unleashed in many jurisdictions in the country and the world, but still has not yet gained a foothold in Massachusetts, despite the death culture's constant attempt to corrupt the medical establishment in the Commonwealth. Today you will hear part one of my interview with Dr. Chris Carrera, who I will introduce to you shortly. She will explain some of the modern-day roots of physician-assisted suicide, which includes the evil of eugenics. This evil also undergirds the twin evils in our culture of death, abortion and contraception. Let us first, as always, begin with prayer. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer, prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls, will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life. O God, you made us in your eternal image, but we perversely often see ourselves as mere material beings. Help us to embrace our dependence on you for our true identity. For without you, we can do nothing. 
Without you, we subjugate ourselves to our fallen nature, which presumes to define good and evil for ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, part one of my interview with Dr. Chris Carrera. Joining me now is Dr. Chris Carrera. Dr. Carrera is a physician assistant in clinical practice since 1993, including emergency medicine, urgent care, and family medicine. She is also involved in education and research in palliative medicine. Chris uh, completed her undergraduate education at Wellesley University and earned her PA certificate and Master's of Health profession at Northeastern University. She has a doctoral degree from Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Chris is certified in healthcare ethics from the National Catholic Bioethics Center and is a member of the Catholic Medical Association. She is a distinguished fellow of the American Association of Physician Assistants and has nearly completed a Master's of Arts in Theology from Holy Apostles College in Connecticut. In addition to all that, has been working to prevent the legalization of assisted suicide in Massachusetts since 2014 and gives presentations regarding advanced directives, including MOLST, which is Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, so, welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's nice to be with you. Thanks for taking the time to uh, join me today. We actually had a few shows in the past on medical orders of life-sustaining treatment, but we were talking earlier, and you mentioned there are some no wrinkles, and you can tell us about that as we go along and tell us some of your own concerns about most. This is an increasingly prevalent document, including the so-called e-most, or the electronic most form. But before we get into that, I was also intrigued when we talked about the fact that you were a Catholic revert, and I found that interesting, and I like to hear about people's journeys as far as their faith is concerned, and I think our listeners um, do as well. So I guess you had told me that you were kind of raised as as sort of a cultural Catholic, not exactly um, going to uh, Mass every Sunday and things like that. And then if I understand it right, you were more or less, I don't know if, if atheist is the right term or agnostic is a better term, or but you can tell us about that. But then you had a, well, you had your uh, reversion as uh, an adult. So I wonder if you could... Um, say a little bit about all that. Sure. Thank you for being interested in that. Being brought up in an Italian family, we were culturally Catholic. So I had this identity of being Catholic. Uh, I did make my first communion, um, but I did not, our family didn't attend Mass any time after that. Um, I think my mother would occasionally go, and it was a, a social event for her. You know, her friends were there. Mm-hmm. And then I, I went off to college, 
And, you know, so off to Wellesley College I go, um, you know, traditionally Protestant university, although now, you know, quite, you know, liberalized, secular kind of thing. Right. But I was actually evangelized there by Campus Crusades for Christ. Wow. Which is a very Protestant organization. Mm-hmm. So some dear friends of mine who I'm still occasionally in touch with, you know, somebody you know, told me about Jesus, and I went to my room, and I actually had a Bible. I, I don't know why, but I did have a Bible amongst amongst my books. <laughs> mm, wow. And I took it down and I started reading it from the, the New Testament, and I read through the Synoptic Gospels. I went, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe in this. You know, to me, it was, it was a great story, and it made great sense to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, I ended up going to some Bible study groups a little bit. Didn't really pursue it a lot, other than that was the time I can say that I did come to embrace my Christianity. And I remember when we graduated, um, the group said, you know, okay, the first important thing you need to do when you get out into the world, you know, you need to find a good church to go to. And they said, just don't go to a Catholic one. (laughs) (laughs) That was part of the formal graduation proceedings. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go to a Catholic one. Don't go to a Catholic church, right? So I ended up in Worcester because originally I was at uh, UMass, the, the doc- a doctoral program there mm-hmm. um, that I didn't, didn't complete. That's what brought me to Worcester. I, I was living on on, um, on Belmont Hill, and I wandered down to, well, the church is now gone. It's now, uh, it, it used to be, I don't know, it merged with St. Bernard's on Lincoln Street. Um, I forget what it was originally called. But I, I went into Mass, and I came out, and... The priest did kind of eye me, like he knew I was, like I was somebody new. But, he, you know, he held his hand, I shook his hand, you know, and that was it. Nobody really talked to me. The next week I went to the church next door, which was the Belmont Street Baptist Church, which is no longer that anymore either. Mm-hmm. And everybody was so friendly, and they mm. were all talking to me. And they all, and the pastor invited me to his house immediately after, after wow. the service. And they passed around this, this this stuff, which was, you know, this, like, little shot glass full of wine and some bread. And I said, oh, yeah, I can remember this. Mm-hmm. Right. So the singing, um, but before anybody, you know, takes this you know, thinking that the Catholics need to change, when I think of, of other people who are not um, really quite socially engaged as I am, would have run away yeah. from such a church. Yeah. So it also, you know, that's you know, people have different personalities, right? So I mean, God was leading leading me on a journey here, mm-hmm. and a very important journey because soon after they asked me to be baptized, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know how I knew, but I knew that somehow that was wrong. I, I said to the pastor, "I'm already baptized." Yeah. Well, no, you need to be baptized again, which, of course, I've since learned that that's not true, that we're supposed to be accepting of other baptisms right, right. once we've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right, that right. that's acceptable. And so um, I walked away um, mm-hmm. from... And in fact, there was another man there who was going to be baptized again because he had been hopping around from Baptist church to Baptist church, so he could keep going through these baptism ceremonies. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, so a little bit, you know, too much of the welcoming, yes. So I, I stopped going, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't go anywhere. I waited until I started dating um, the man who's now my husband, mm-hmm. who asked me to uh, go to church with him. He mm-hmm. had just started going back to church, and so I started going back to a Catholic church. 
starting in about 93 and was there for, for many, many years. We got married. We had kids. We got married at Wellesley, in fact, because that was the place I knew it came to my face. We had kids, and uh, I started homeschooling. Yeah. And I fell in with um, a homeschooler up the street in a homeschool community. It was at a, a woman's house who was Catholic, and the woman who was up the street was Catholic, though it was ecumenical, so mm-hmm. in terms of all, all different Christian faiths. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I was kind of viewed as Catholic because I was attending the Catholic Church, and we were out at some bookstore, and I thought, you know what, if people think I'm Catholic, and you know, I do go to a Catholic church, <laughs> I should probably find out what the Catholics believe. Yeah. So I picked up this book. Um, it was Cresta's book, um, mm. the, one of the question and answer books. I'm trying to um, think of which Al Cresta book it was. Um, it's not Why Do Why Do Catholics Eat, eat Fish on Friday, because that's a different <laughs> book, but it's similar to that. Yeah. You know, why do Catholics believe what they believe? Yeah. And I'm thumbing through the questions and answers, and one of the questions was about the Eucharist, or it talked about the Eucharist, and about the fact that only Catholics believed that the Eucharist was the true presence of Jesus Christ, body, mm-hmm. blood, soul, and divinity. And that was my moment right there. And as opposed to what you might think, I somehow, again, just like I, I don't know how, I knew that baptism, I didn't need to be baptized again. I knew that that was the true presence. Mm-hmm. Always. I don't know how I knew. Um, you mean from I, that moment on, or even... I, well, for, well, from that moment on, when I found out that Catholics were the only ones that yeah, believed yeah, it, yeah. that's when I knew I was Catholic and could not be any other faith. Well, from the, that moment that I was Catholic and I couldn't be anything else. Yeah, it's the source um, and summit, right? Else. The source and summit that's of right. our faith. That's right. And so there wasn't a question, there wasn't a doubt, and I don't know how that came to be. That I mean, that's great. That is just pure grace, just mm-hmm. like what yeah. happened with the baptism. Yep. Um, and that was when I began. And, of course, you know, homeschooling and having the kids at home, I couldn't really get to Mass very often. And I used to watch EWTN. And I was catechized by watching daily Mass on EWTN. Um, which is a great way to be catechized because, yeah. first of all, it's scripturally based, right? You get the Old Testament reading, the New Testament reading, the Psalms. And they would give these wonderful 15, 20-minute homilies yeah, that were very in-depth. It's uh, um, And I learned tremendously. Yeah, it's a great resource. And then one day, one of my homeschooling friends turns to me and says, they were talking about um, confirmation names. So what's your confirmation name? And I just sort of stared at her blankly. (laughs) And I I called my mother and I said, was that confirmed? She said, isn't that the same thing as First Communion? Mm, Yeah, well, better ask someone else, right? (laughs) And I I mentioned this to my husband and he said, you sign up right now. Okay? Yeah. (laughs) Go. (laughs) So I became confirmed in 2000, uh, late 2007. Yeah, well, that's a great... uh, Great story. <laughs> I've been, you know, so, and now I'm a daily man. Now I'm a, I'm a third order Carmelite, or at least in the process of oh, becoming wow. one. So, wow. So the whole, you go on the whole enchilada. Absolutely, absolutely, all because of the Eucharist. The Catholic Church you went to initially didn't have a great welcoming committee, but your husband welcomed you, and the, you found the Eucharist. So, so that's um, that's right. A good Thanks way to El Cresta. 
<laughs> Dale Cresta. Yeah, I listen to him almost every day, or at least part of his show. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a very informative guy. Well, you know, the reason I asked you to, to uh, come on, besides telling that, that cool story, was uh, because you and I and other, many others have been uh, working on the physician-assisted suicide issue, and after we touched bases again, I was looking up uh, the uh, website that you uh, developed, which you can talk about later, but I, I found you on a podcast that you did uh, with the National Catholic Bioethics Center. And uh, I, I heard you talking, was giving a very interesting uh, history of uh, assisted suicide and how it is tied in uh, with eugenics. So I wonder if you could go over some of that. Oh, sure. This is a, a fascinating history, very eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and not it's for all the pro-life uh, and all the bioethics issues, because it ties into the starting of, of the field of bioethics. Right. Uh, and it really began with philosophy, in, with the Enlightenment era. Mm-hmm. That was the, you know, that was the, the age of reason and free thinking with philosophers like Rousseau and Kant, Hume, Hobbes, Locke. Uh, what they did was they they changed the idea of God from some someone who created us and was external to us, mm-hmm. an objective reality, and said that he was actually what a construct of our intellect. So, in particular, in the area of morals, that that uh, man perfected himself through his rational thinking, and we decided what was right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Of course, that just really harkens back to Adam and Eve, the beginning of it all, so right. that eating of the fruit of, of um, good and evil. Right. So that's precisely what was happening there, and that was the rise of what was called relativism, because now if everybody's deciding their own morality, then everything becomes relativistic. And that was the same time that, the around the same time the word science was coined, we were mm. talking about uh, Newton a little bit after. Yeah, that's but, interesting. I know, didn't realize well, that... Uh, they were the same thing with all the enlightenment idea of taking God out. Yeah. Once we've got cut God out, is the the problem, and uh, and when our morals are not based on what what we would call natural law, mm-hmm. which Thomas Aquinas wrote extensively about, where there's an objective, you know, an objective nature. We have a nature as human beings, that mm-hmm. nature that God created us with, mm-hmm. and it's easy enough to figure out, like the fact that we want to preserve our lives, mm-hmm. that is, you know, number one. It's pretty obvious that's been true of all human beings pretty much everywhere. Right. right? Yeah. Is, you know. Uh, and so, um, so science, and the word science means knowledge, because they were so obsessed with knowledge. Mm. Of course, they, they, they focused just on the material world, could be but examined through the scientific method, and that cuts out the entire supernatural world and mm-hmm. everything that we've developed using metaphysics, mm-hmm. you know, theology. Right. So uh, it's not a surprise that by the time the 1900s rolled around, the 20th century rolled around, we had this thing called eugenics. So a man named Francis Galton, who's the cousin of Charles Darwin, hmm. um, first proposed the, this uh, this idea of eugenics. Now, he's also one of the principal founders of the theory of statistics, 
which also just feeds into this whole idea of eugenics. Um, he, he was somewhat inspired by his uh, cousin's writings on evolution mm-hmm. uh, because eugenics means well-born. Mm. Uh, and it's the idea of better breeding, yeah. <laughs> of, of you know, human, better humans through better breeding. Yeah, right. uh, so he, co- he, yeah he, he coined the term in 1883, and this is his definition. The study of the agencies under social control that improve or impair the racial quality of future generations, either physically or mentally. Mm-hmm. And when you think back to what's happened with this Enlightenment philosophy, when you think about the French Revolution, when you think about um, some of the other major philosophers, once you start to believe, once you start coming up with your own system of what's right and wrong, Mm -hmm. you believe you are right. And anybody who doesn't agree with you needs to be uh, put in place, needs to be controlled. Uh, And so that's why we get this big focus onto these social agencies and laws in order to kind of to engineer a society in the way that they think it should be. Sounds also and, a lot like what we're going through now. Yeah, it's never stopped. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, in uh, 1909, in the Essays in Eugenics, and th- this will sound even even more so, um, this is what Galton wrote. He wrote five points of, of how, to, how to advance eugenics. And in his fifth point, it was the persistence in setting forth the national importance of eugenics. Now, he's in England, but this was a worldwide movement in the 1920s. In fact, G.K. Chesterton wrote a book called Eugenics and Other Evils, So, because uh, he was living in the thick of it. So this is what uh, this is what Galton uh, wrote. He said there are three stages to be passed through. Firstly, it must be made familiar as an academic question until its exact importance has been understood and accepted as a fact. Secondly, it must be recognized as a subject whose practical development deserves serious consideration. Thirdly, it must be introduced into the national conscience, mm-hmm. like a new religion. Mm, yeah, yeah. So we start in the academy, then we move to the society, and um, eventually it has to become something that everybody embraces to the point that they make it a moral argument, right? This national conscience, because our morals typically come from our theology, our religion. Right, right. So... Uh, and this became a worldwide phenomenon. There were eugenics record offices that popped up in London, Germany, um, the United States, other places, the Netherlands. In the United States, it was Charles Davenport, who was a scientist. And this was in Cold Springs Harbor, New York. And in 1904, it started out as the Station for Experimental Evolution. And then in 1910, it became the Eugenics Records Office. And there were two aspects to eugenics. There was positive and negative eugenics. So mm-hmm. positive eugenics was all about breeding better babies. Mm-hmm. And you can find all kinds of stuff on the Internet about baby contests at World Fairs. They were trying to see, oh, who, who had the best breeding, who made the best children. This is really uh, a whole PR campaign to really get people to try and, and you know, find the right mates and to produce better offspring. But there's also the negative eugenics, which was the discouraging or the prohibiting or even the denying of those who were not of good stock. Yeah, hello, Margaret Sanger, right? Yeah. 
particularly the feeble-minded. Yes. And um, this is why IQ tests were developed. This is where our the IQ tests that are so prevalent today, this was their origin. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. To be able to declare people feeble-minded mm-hmm. and uh, came into a very dark history in our, in our country. Mm-hmm. So this was embraced by scientists, intellectuals, socialites, physicians, lawyers, yeah. and even theologians, not Catholic, because it was the Catholic Church was the only major organization that fought this tooth and nail. Cassie Canubi condemned eugenics, yeah. and, and, and a follow-up letter from the CDF uh, further strengthened the idea that this is just evil. So it's one of our first encyclicals with the intrinsic evil in there. Yeah. So in the United States, in 1912-1914, we get sex education and contraception. Margaret Sanger began with sex ed. Right. We just had the vicious fight in Worcester yes. over the Planned Parenthood sex ed yep. um, curriculum. Yeah, so we that, spent that's uh, where some time on that recently, and and that was you're right. It was a, a it was a real fight. Right, right, and we and by and large, people were ignored. The, the citizens were ignored. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, she actually, because of her controversial views, was exiled to England, but there she found a lot of other like-minded people and became more entrenched mm-hmm. when she came back. In 1915 was actually a, uh, a national case of infanticide. Mm. Once again, didn't we just face this, right? Yeah. Dr. Harry Hasselden, he was in Chicago. He refused to operate on baby Bollinger. Baby Bollinger was born, had multiple physical deformities, there was syphilis involved, that the mother mm-hmm. had this from congenital syphilis. Mm-hmm. But there were surgical repairs that could be done that this child could live, mm-hmm. and he refused to do it. And he talked to the parents and said, really, let nature take its course with this child. And the, the parents, you know, believed what the physician told them. Yep, and the, the whole the quality died. of life uh, argument. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, then he turned around and went to the news media to proclaim it. And this became a national sensation of the likes you wouldn't believe. And this is where we found out, for example, that Helen Keller was such a dramatic eugenicist and came out very much in favor of, um, in support of of Hasselden. Hmm. Uh, He he even created his own little film called The Black Stork to promote what what he did. It's a very over-dramatized film Mm. of uh, letting uh, letting this poor baby die, it kind of dipped off in popularity. You know, he died about three years after the doctor. Doctor um, Hisman died, mm. and so the the fervor dipped down for a bit. But uh, but by 1937, 45 percent of the U.S. population felt favorably about mercy killing. Wow, amazing! This concludes part one of my interview with Dr. Chris Carrera. Tune in next week when you will hear more about the disturbing evolution of eugenics and how it led to forced sterilization, contraception, abortion, euthanasia, and mass murder. Until next time, remember, we should always... Treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. 
Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rolo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrolo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first, do no harm.